All right, tonight's New Testament reading is 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Do not, believe, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Join me as we pray. Oh God, we're so hopeful, so hopeful because of who you are. We've experienced you throughout this service, hearing uh, true things about your character and your grace. Each of us is in such a great place of need in different ways. We thank you that you are attracted to needy people. You are drawn to the weak. We pray that you might come near to us and each of us would leave this place going, I've met with God. We trust you for this. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. There are... Well, let me ask you this. Um, what motivates your integrity? Think about that. Or kids, I would say this. What, what makes you want to be good and do right? Uh, for some people, maybe it's they just have personal standards. And, and you know, the idea is just I, I couldn't violate my personal standards. Or maybe they're their parents' standards, their cultural standards. Maybe it's religious conviction. Maybe it's the fear of being shamed publicly. The fear of being caught. What motivates your integrity? The greatest motivation for integrity is intimacy. Relational intimacy. That's where this passage brings us. You might think, well, the thought of betraying a friend or a spouse or the team, that thought is just too great. And that compels you to remain faithful and have integrity. It's relational intimacy that ultimately becomes the strongest motivation. And what this passage is doing is it's trying to move us that direction with God. Can we move to a place where our grasp of our personal intimacy with him becomes the driving force of our integrity? That's where we're put. Now, there's a couple challenges to this. The first may be 
If you're in a place where uh, you're unsure, uncertain, don't believe that God is personal, well, then you're not going to have access to that greatest motivation, right? If God is just a superpower or a higher power of the universe, you don't have personal relationship invested, therefore you don't have that motivation. Another might be just the way you see God. If you see God as distant, if you see God as disappointed, you won't have that relational intimacy, and so you lack that great motivation and power. But the good news is, is, is the Christian faith, and this God constantly keeps preaching to us, that I am the most personal of all beings. You get it from me. <laughs> if you believe and experience life that way, it's because you get it from me. And I am one that has a name, can be known, I have a will, I have affection, I speak words, I commit actions. We begin to know God that way. It opens up a whole new door in our understanding. And then we move a little bit further and come to see that all of that leads then to God himself coming in our midst, living with us personally, being personal, day in and day out, conversations, relationships, and so much so, being so driven by his personal bond with us that he would die for us by name. And that he would do so he, so he could usher us into the circle of the divine trinity. amidst the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and that we might be caught up in the middle of that beautiful relationship. It's this intimacy then that really begins to change you, begins to be transforming. We love God and neighbor in a new way because he loved us first and so much. His faithfulness to his people becomes our faithfulness and integrity. And we've been talking about God's faithfulness to his church. So, I want to ask you this question. This is my goal for us. Can we strengthen the connection between our integrity and his intimacy? Can we do that? And so uh, toward that end, I want to do two things. I want to look at the nature or the character of that intimacy, what it's like, and then try to make sense of this radical call we heard read that maybe on the surface you were like, whoa. So let's look at that. First of all, the character, the character of the intimacy. Now, uh, oftentimes for each of us, there are special places in our lives. Uh, maybe there are places of intimacy. Maybe it's your grandmother's kitchen table. For other people, maybe it's a table at a restaurant. Or maybe it's a spot on the Potomac River where you like to go and just be by yourself. Or a park that you and a friend meet at and just talk and, and share your lives together. There's a place of intimacy. In the Bible, we see that same thing with Israel. As, as the relationship with God and his people unfolds, he realizes we need, a, we need a spot, 
us. We need a spot together. And so he commands Moses to build what's called the tabernacle, but another name for it is the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting. Why? Because God wanted to express his great desire and commitment to meet, to meet. And that same idea then develops into the grand temple. Solomon's temple, and then the second temple, a place where God will meet with his people. Now, one of the lowest points in the Old Testament is when King Manasseh erected uh, worthless images. And you find that, way, uh, that word worthless, uh, Belial or Belial, that word actually means worthless, to lack integrity, to lead people astray. In Paul's day, it was actually used uh, of Satan, of, of worthlessness. So King Manasseh erects these things in the temple. And the writer of Kings says this, that when Manasseh did that, he committed a greater evil than the nations had perpetrated against Israel. When you think about it, that was a lot of evil that the nations committed against Israel. And he would say, when the king did that, it was a greater evil than all of it. Why? Because the temple was the place of God's special, intimate meeting with his people. And he, and he adulterated it. He, he interrupted it. He confused it. It's like you know, showing up at that restaurant at your favorite table and finding your ex there with someone else, right? You're like, that's too much, right? <laughs> God shows up and, and some of this has to do with the way Christians understand worship. You know, these scriptures that we find here, worship in the Bible isn't primarily ritual or motion. It is Communion, the old theologians would use the word having intercourse with God. God is a lover who I'm having the most intimate communion with. And this string of Old Testament quotations you find here is basically talking about the intimacy of God, this presence in worship. This is something, I'll tell you, if, if we could really get this in our hearts, it would change our week-to-week -week experience. Because I understand the scripture to teach that God has attached his intimate presence to worship the gathering of his people more than anything else. And if we show up going, I'm expecting him to be there, we listen in a different way. We come with a different expectation. But even that image wasn't enough to explain this God who we're talking about. And here we could fast forward to a famous discussion that happened with a woman at a well in John chapter 4, where Jesus basically says, we've talked about worship here or worship there. I want to tell you it's not about place. Worship has become a person. I am now the meeting place between God and human beings. I am the God-man. And you fast forward to the book of Revelation, and it tells us this. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. 
That's the temple. Sometimes we sing a song here that says, your presence is heaven to me. That's a biblical sentiment. That's what the whole thing is about, right? As much as we might think about heaven, like I can't wait to get to heaven because, man, the food's going to be great. Or I won't be limping anymore. Or I'll get to see this person. Or, you know, I imagine that the, the earth will be renewed and I, maybe, maybe I'll be able to sing. You know, I'll be able to fly. I don't know, whatever you think about. But we want to get to the point where we would go, all of that is vacant to me without your presence. Because the reality is, is you and I will be captivated. Captivated by the presence of God. In the presence of Jesus. Now kids, this is the way I would put this. If you are drawing a picture, if you're drawing a picture of the temple or God's house, what you would do is you would draw that church or that temple in the shape of Jesus. But you wouldn't be done yet because inside that temple, inside the Jesus temple, you would draw lots of little men, women, and children of every color and of every race and every ethnicity because the Bible goes on to tell us when people come to know Jesus and believe in him, we are the temple of God. Do you see the connection now, right? Amen, sister. <laughs> we'll never know until we get to heaven what all these little babes have been saying. You know, the Lord said, from the mouths of babes, I will declare my praise. God dwells now directly, immediately, and intimately in the gathering of his people. In fact, the book of Ephesians says something that will get your mind like, I don't understand this, that that gathering is the fullness of God. The fullness of God. The Old Testament saints would have been blown away by it because it's not just the temple that's unfolded. The New Testament doesn't say that we just have, we're just the temple. It actually says inside the temple was the most holy place, the holy of holies, that only the high priest could go into once a year. And it's saying that experience is now normative for every believer in Jesus. Any time, any moment, any day, you can enter the most holy place. The most holy place. And have intimate fellowship with the high God of the universe. This is that temple. So, having that in our minds, you know, I want to ask you again, well, I ask you a different question. What is your experience of the intimacy of God right now? Do you find it's grounded in that reality, which God has done, and that gathering? Because it's only with that in our minds that the call 
the call he makes to holiness and radical living will make sense. Now, you know, there are sometimes radical behavior only makes sense in the context of the relationship. So, for instance, you know, someone might come up to you and go, hey, you know, I know we've met a couple times and, you know, I've really enjoyed that. And I was wondering if we could go out and have coffee together and wondering, you know, if maybe after that we could hit a museum and just get to know each other. And the person responds and goes, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Man, I'm just asking for coffee. Well, the reason they say that is because they're seriously dating someone or they're married, right? The radical response has to do with the relational context. It would make no sense apart from that. It would just seem rude. Or a very Washington example. That probably was a very Washington example. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you meet someone and you begin, what do you do? What do you do? And you begin to talk. And, uh, you know, this person begins to unfold why I do this and different details about their job. And then you ask them, what do you do? And they say, I work for the State Department. And then you say, so tell me what that's like. And they go, I'm sorry, I can't. (laughs) Right? Now, at first, if you're new to Washington, you'll be like, man, that's just rude. What, What is the deal with that sort of like radical, no, I'm sorry, conversation over. I'm separating myself from this conversation. Until you learn, well, okay, they work in security. The relational context defines the radical behavior. What Paul is calling people to, and all it seems like, whoa, this is stark, is only understood if you first put it in place with the intimacy. Now, let me unpack that. And let me first say, uh, there are, I think, two potential errors that have happened as people have read a passage like this. The first one is to read what Paul says when he's talking about, you know, like, you know, separate yourself, touch no unclean thing, don't create this part, have no fellowship with darkness. He talks about relationships with unbelievers. And the way the church has applied this is is in a superficial way, meaning not with the intimacy, but going, that means there are certain movies, don't watch these kind of movies, or Christians should not work in these type of careers, or we need to build a fortress, you know, against the culture. A little helpful thing to note is likely when Paul is talking about unbelievers in this passage, he's actually talking about people not outside the church, but in the church. He's talking about the people that he's been having trouble with the entire time, that profess to be Christians, but actually are not. But still... It's a superficial application. This is at the heart of so many of Jesus' conflicts with the religious leaders, right? They've got this way that they do life, the way they have applied their relationship with God, and he's constantly getting at them saying, you don't know God. And so the way you're trying to apply holiness is superficial. You think what's outside makes someone tainted. You don't understand the inside. So that's the first mistake. The other one is to write off the radical extremism of what Paul is saying. We write it off because, well, one, I think it can be our cultural moment, right? 
There's certain things we would say, well, that's just extreme according to our culture. Or we feel like uh, the reason we ought to write it off is because it's judgy or it doesn't appear to be loving, right? Now, if you heard that passage read, I'm sure if, you know, all of us at one point sort of flinched a bit. We got, we got to realize that's not just... You can't, be in, you, can't, you can't be in a smoky room without smelling like smoke, right? All of us reflect our culture, even if we don't realize it. So, how do we understand this? All these terms that Paul uses when he talks about yoked, and here he's talking about two animals that would be harnessed together. You know, you can't have two animals that are unlike because they're just going to pull different ways. It's not going to work. But he talks about don't have fellowship, don't have accord. And what he is saying is this. Do not be in intimate partnership with things that will threaten your integrity. Do not be in intimate partnership with things that will threaten your integrity. Jesus used some pretty radical words for this, right? He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He doesn't mean literally, but he does mean decisively. Decisively. And this is why we find other scriptures that would say, flee from sin. Keep to a path far from it. There's a difference between fear and the fear of the Lord. There's a difference between being obsessive and being sober-minded about my vulnerabilities. And you could see this in lots of ways, right? Let's imagine, uh, and, and let me say, even for people outside of the church, we already have this practice into place. You know, you, let's say you begin to... Uh, hang out with someone, it's a new friend in the circle, and they have this tendency to, to just gossip a lot. And before you know it, you find you're gossiping more. And you're like, huh, this re- this re- I don't like me in this relationship. I don't like what it's doing. Or maybe you find yourself working for you know, uh, an office or some group where there's just really a, a vitriol response to the opponent, whoever they are, the competitor. And you find yourself, you know, all of a sudden being less charitable with people. And you're like, you know, this, this partnership is making my love and charity vulnerable. Or again, it might be you, you're at work, you're married, a coworker's married, and you're spending time together and you realize, hmm, I feel like, you know, we're probably looking forward too much to spending time together. There's like a subtle flirtation that's happening. At that point, someone says, I've got to create some distance. It's not unusual for us to go, I've got to create distance. The question is, have you ever done it for the sake of your relationship with God? That's what we're trying to, to get at. Because I'm getting to know him and I know what he loves and what he doesn't love. And therefore, I'm going to pull away. 
So this is one way that we understand a call. But the other way is this phrase that Paul gives us, which is bringing holiness to completion. So uh, you might think about a psalm that says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly father. By perfect, he's talking about wholeness and maturity. Sin has a way of dividing. Sin divides. It causes division in our hearts. And so we can find ourselves uh, actually compartmentalizing and putting this thing that would tempt me and compromise my integrity over here. And, and here's the thing. It's hard, I think, for modern people that have such a strong ethic of individualism and autonomy to realize that I, I cannot handle sin. Sin handles me. I don't manage sin. Sin manages me. There's no sort of befriending and, and sort of let's, we're, we're going to kind of hang out together. It never works that way. Sin has a desire to control. Sin has a desire to divide. It has a, it, it had a, a, a desire to disassemble, to disassemble you and me like the wicked witch does the scarecrow. To fragment us. And so we find ourselves, you know, where, and, and, and it, you know, hits us in this moment where we're like, Maybe, it, maybe it's little ways like this, like I'm really integratable in my relationships, but not so much my work ethic at work. Or maybe I'm really like integratable and faithful in my work, but when it comes to volunteering at the church, not so much. Or maybe it is, I'm really faithful in the area of my, you know, sort of, uh, My personal integrity when it comes to things like morality and sexual purity and all these different things. But, you know, I really have a lust for more. You know, I, want, I find that there's greed in my heart. You know, I'm, I'm never content with what I have. Sin has a way of saying it's okay to be faithful in these areas, but that... It tries to divide us. It tries to divide our love loyalty. The Lord, the Lord desires to make us whole people. Whole people. That's what integrity means, right? One of the meanings of integrity is wholeness, to be undivided. Does that mean sinless? No, never. Never. Right? But, but what it means is I'm not, I'm, I'm aware of the potential for these areas that threaten my integrity to not just cause me to stumble, but to kind of get my perspective out of whack about what it means to be wholly given to God. So I, I want to ask you, and this probably looked different for all of us. Where is that area in your life 
uh, right now that you feel like, nah, my integrity is very vulnerable right here, or maybe it's shaky. Because the last call that this passage gives us is something we really need to hold on to. It's a promise. Because the temptation is, when, when we compromise our integrity, our temptation is to either go, I'll fix it, I'll make it better, or to hide in the shadows because we're ashamed, right? But this is what we're told here. Paul says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Actually, this is the Lord, Old Testament quote. Says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters to me. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Did you hear those words? Welcome. Father, son and daughter, beloved. These are promises that were made to the Messiah in the Old Testament, and now they're made to the Messiah's people. And when we hear those things, what is it saying? What's the, what, the point of the promise is restoration. It's relational restoration. Can you see that? God is calling his people out of that sort of, you know, deception, out of that, those intimate partnerships that are unholy, but he doesn't just call them into nothingness. It doesn't work that way. Right? We, never, we, we would never give up those things because in many ways they're like fake relationships. They're fake security blankets. It's not enough to just be called from something. You have to be called to something. And so what we have is, as we're struggling with, I've got this area that I don't want to let go or I'm too close, what you see is not just nothing out there. You see a father, like the prodigal father, that's going, my son, my daughter, beloved, come to me. Come to me. And the intimacy is restored. And then the motivation, right? The motivation comes back. It strengthens us. The ultimate, you know, sin desires to orphan us from our father and away from our brothers and sisters and to make us not feel beloved. And Jesus died for the opposite. So we have every reason, my friends, to be a church that is free to repent and a church that is free to let go. But we need the gospel and we need community and we need safe communities to do that. So um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. What a great intimacy we have with you. And the call to leave and to separate is the call of a faithful lover. Oh, would you help us, Lord? Even this week, would you help us to see our Father, to see ourselves as an adopted son and daughter, to see that we have brothers and sisters. And we pray that that voice would call us into the light. In Christ's name, amen.